Uh, I want to dive in this morning and, uh, and be just kind of move us along this morning uh, in kind of the series that we've been a part of. If you know, over the last four weeks, we've been taking a look at the story of Abundant Life Church. We've taken a look at the, the past and some of the amazing things that have made us the church that we are. And we've also been taking a look at the future. And we've been looking at some language to kind of frame in for us what does it mean to be Abundant Life Church and how do we move forward uh, as a church family. And so this series is really just my opportunity to kind of lay out for us a framework, what are the steps that we take as a, as a spiritual family together. And, uh, and so I'm not going to rehearse all the stuff that we've done over the last three or four weeks. You can go back, download the app, look on the website. You can catch up on some of that stuff and podcasts and all that other technology stuff. But last weekend, we did talk about this idea of, of what is the goal of the Christian life. And what we concluded last week was that the goal of the Christian life isn't to attend church, right? Isn't to kind of be a good moral person. The goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. Now, I'm not the sharp, sharpest knife in the drawer, but I love it when we can make it really simple, right? And so it's really simple. Become more like Jesus. So when I read the Gospels, right, and in Colossians, actually, it says that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. I get to see what God is like. I get to reflect his image and his glory when I look into the life of Jesus. In fact, we read a few verses last week that said when we behold Jesus, that we become or we're transformed to become more and more like him. This is our goal. Now, we ended last week with this little model that we were looking at as a framework for some of the things that we'll do as we move into the future. We're looking at some labs and cohorts and groups and classes and discipleship pathway type stuff. But what we did say was we said, hey, there are four components that we feel are really important to go into that. Number one is the Word of God. How many of you know we believe in the Word of God around here, right? You know, it's like if you go to Starbucks, you expect to get coffee. If you go to church, you should expect to get the Word of God right? And so we want to build our lives, but we also want to build our church family and our community on the Word of God. And so we said, hey, if we're going to grow to become more like Jesus, we want to be uh, submitted to, yielded to the Word of God. And so the Word of God is authoritative. The Word of God is inspired. The Word of God is the foundation upon which we build our individual lives, but we build the life of our community together. Now, we also recognized last week, we said that, well, in the, if, the, if the word of God is authoritative, the Bible tells us in James 1.22 that we're not just to be hearers of the word, but we are to be doers of the word. We actually got to put this stuff into practice, right? And, and so that makes church kind of this big playing field that we get to practice on each other, right? You know, so when the Bible says to love one another, how many of you know you're going to get an opportunity to love one another? How many of you know when the Bible says to be patient with one another, we get to put that stuff into practice, right? We, can, we don't just say, I believe. The Bible says to be patient with one another. I believe that, but I'm certainly not going to put it into practice, right? Like, no, the Bible says we should put it into practice with one another. So we want to build our lives on the Word of God. We want to put that stuff into practice. Now, here's the really good news that we've talked about uh, on and off over the last couple of weeks. You get to do that not in your own strength because how many of you know you don't have the ability in yourself to become all that Jesus has called you to be? In fact, Galatians actually teaches us. It says that, that um, you can be a Christian and choose to live out, try to live out the Christian life in the flesh, right? Or you can be a Christian and live out life 
in the spirit or, or in God's personal presence. And so the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead abides inside every believer, every person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus and empowers us to live this life of becoming more and more like Jesus. So we have God's word, we have practice, we have the Holy Spirit that's helping us. But today I want to kind of do a little bit of a zoom in on the fourth component, which is this idea of community. And today I want to talk about church, right? And I want to talk about, man, what does it mean to be the church? How is God's building the church? What is the church? Because we live in a country and in a world where perhaps what church is, or what the Bible at least teaches us to be church, has actually got kind of covered over or buried in what kind of culture's perspective of church is. And so today, I want to kind of blow the dust off. I want to pull back the curtain. And I want to look at the Bible to look at what is the church. I want us to engage with our third pursuit as a church family. And I would say it this way. Our third pursuit as a church family is that we would be a Christ-centered community, that we would pursue belonging to, that's going to be really important, and participating in a loving, formative, because we're becoming something, right? So it's a formative community, a diverse and covenant community unified around Jesus. We pursue belonging to and participating in a loving, formative, and diverse covenant community unified around Jesus. Now, there was a very famous preacher. His name was Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Very, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, actually, is actually his full name. And Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s was a pastor of Metropolitan Church in London, England. And uh, there were like 10,000 people attending his church. And uh, he was, uh, he was the, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. So remember, he didn't have like one of these fancy microphones, you know, and Daniel running sound at the back. It was like just him and a big booming voice, 10,000 people, right? And uh, And... Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the most amazing, in fact, they've printed many of his sermons and books and journals and look back, and he's known as the Prince of Preachers, an amazing guy. And uh, Charles Spurgeon made this statement about the church. He said this. He said, the church is the dearest place on earth. The church is the dearest place on earth. Now, to be fair, he said it in the context of the fact that, look, we're imperfect, the church is imperfect, the world's imperfect, so it's not perfect, but it is the dearest place on earth. And for me growing up, uh, most of you know I grew up in Ireland, and, uh, and so for me growing up, uh, during my teenage years, my parents, they, uh, they weren't attending church. They'd kind of backslidden a bit and, and uh, weren't attending church at that point, but something had got planted in my heart it was a love for the bride of Christ. It wasn't just a love for Jesus. It wasn't a love for attending something on a weekend or a group of people. It was this love for the body of Christ. And so I would wake up on a Sunday morning, and uh, after I'd taken a shower, using Irish Spring, of course, um, <clears throat> I, had a bowl, I had a bowl of cereal, you guessed it, Lucky Charms, and they were magically delicious. <clears throat> Trust me, trust me. And there are leprechauns and rainbows and pots of gold as well. Honestly, it's all true. But, <clears throat> but after I'd done all that stuff, I used, to, I used to actually walk, and Jenny's not here to attest to this, but I used to walk six miles to go to church on Sunday mornings. And sometimes I got picked up by some folks that were on their way to church and they recognized me. And sometimes I just walked the six miles to church. But during that season, the Lord put something in my heart, something around this idea that the church the family of God, the bride of Christ is the 
dearest place, that you are the dearest people on the planet. And there was this something that the Lord just began to stir in my heart as a teenager, that it wasn't just about my relationship with Jesus. It was the fact that Jesus had invited me into a covenant relationship with him, but he'd also invited me into a covenant relationship with his family. And so for me, the church really is the dearest place on earth. But I also recognize that standing here as a pastor in a room this size, that when you hear that phrase, this idea that the church is the dearest place on earth, there might be a gap, there might be a chasm the size of the Grand Canyon between this idea that the church is the dearest place on earth and your experience. Because for some in this room, man, you may have been hurt. There may have been disappointment. There may have been frustrating or negative experiences around the church. In fact, there may have even been kind of abuse. There may have been uh, emotional abuse or this is just not the way it's meant to be. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, nothing hurts like church hurt. Anyone heard that before? Because we expect different from the church, don't we? And yet sometimes our experience of this place that Spurgeon called the dearest place on earth is anything but. Could I just take a moment to speak to you this morning and just in humility as a pastor to just ask your forgiveness, to just say, hey, I'm really sorry that your experience of church world, of church family, of the bride of Christ wasn't as it ought to be. That maybe you got hurt. Maybe there's frustration or disappointment. And maybe you've battled through it. You're obviously sitting here in the room. And so you've, you've kind of worked through it perhaps. Or perhaps you're working through it. But I just want to take a moment. And just on behalf of just church life, church people as pastor to say, hey, I want to ask your forgiveness. I'm sorry that that happened. It ought not to have been that way. And how many of you know we do live in a broken and an imperfect world, don't we? And that the church isn't perfect, but it's still the dearest place on earth. That God is actually building his church. That God describes his church as the family of God. He describes it as the bride of Christ. And that Jesus is actively right now building the body of Christ, building the family of God. He's pouring into his bride and he's, he's wanting his bride to be adorned with his glory so that she might display the glory and the majesty and the goodness of God. As imperfect as we are, God is still building his church. In fact, if we were to ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus is up to right now? You know, Jesus comes to earth and, and he lives the life we couldn't live, right? And then he fulfills all righteousness. He goes to the cross. He's crucified. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. He spends 40 days with about 500 different witnesses and disciples. And then it says that he ascends into the heavenlies and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. What is it that Jesus is up to? Well, there's two things. One, the Bible tells us that Jesus is making intercession for you and for me right now. But the second thing that Jesus is up to is he's building his church. He says in Matthew 16, 18, I not might build my church, I will build my church. And it goes on and it says that the gates of hell, so no matter what would try to resist and come against the body and the bride of Christ, he's still going to build his church. Nothing will prevail against it. 
And so we recognize that God is calling us to be the body of Christ. God has invited us to be his bride. So it's not just that Jesus has invited you into a relationship with him. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans chapter 12 that God then actually sets the members into the body of Christ. That every one of us that have given our life to Jesus, surrendered our hearts to him, have said you're the only way. Jesus then invites us not just into a relationship with him, but into his family. And so this is what Jesus has called us to. Jesus has called us to be a part of his family. How is it then that God is building his church? Well, this is what it says. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to spend some time in Ephesians today. Probably the perfect or the best book for you to learn about the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, your phone, your iPad, whatever way you read the Bible, I want to encourage you to read along with us because it's good to read the Bible, to see it, to underline, to take some notes around it. But this is what Paul told the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he came, Jesus that is, and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, remember, we've talked about this a couple of times. When you see that little word peace right there, what he's talking about is not a hot cup of cocoa by a fire on a snowy day. What he's talking about is shalom, completeness, everything as it was meant to be. And so Jesus shows up, and what he's preaching, what he's declaring, what he's ushering in is shalom. And who is he preaching and ushering in this shalom with? He's ushering it into those who are far away and those who are near. Paul goes on and he says this in verse 18. For, though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That language is so powerful because you've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. You're a, you're a fellow citizen now with all the rights and privileges of the kingdom of God because you're a member of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks, that what God is doing is taking us as living stones, building us into a temple, a habitation for his Spirit, for his personal presence with us, but not just so that we can receive, but so that as we become more like him, we display and demonstrate the glory and the splendor of God to the world around us. And so this is what Jesus is talking about right here. He's saying, I am building my church. How is it that Jesus is building his church? Well, the apostles, or sorry, the, the readers uh, of the, in the Ephesus church, so what would have happened is that this letter would have come from Paul and, and the pastor of that church would have read this letter to the church gathered in Ephesus. And by the way, Ephesus was a large church of about 24,000 people, so not small fries here. And so he, he would have read this letter to the church in Ephesus, and when he read the letter, what the, the, uh, the Ephesian Christians would have understood is that Jesus is building his church, and the way in which he's building his church is he's preaching the kingdom or the gospel to those who are near and those who are far. Another way that it gets said in the New Testament is the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, those who are familiar with religion but maybe don't have any relationship, as well as those who have no familiarity with religion at all and certainly no relationship. And the point that Paul is trying to help this church in Ephesus understand, and by default trying to help us understand, is that 
God is building his church through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is welcoming those who are far and those who are near into this family that's called the family of God. Those who have some experience with religion, but maybe no relationship, and those who have no experience with religion, they're irreligious and no relationship. And God is speaking, Jesus is preaching to them and inviting them in him into the family of God. And so reading this, they would have, got, they would have begun to understand that there's this diverse community from all of these diverse backgrounds, different stages and ages and different uh, upbringings and different perspectives and opinions and interests, right? And God is bringing them together into the family of God. But let me ask you this question. How many of you were raised in what you would describe as a Christian home? Okay, good. Uh, and so does that mean that how many of you, the rest then, I would assume, were not raised in a Christian home? Raise your hands. Come on. We're participating, remember? Okay, so no, let me, let me get this right. There was, I know there were more hands. Okay, I'm not even going to try and figure it out. How many of you maybe were raised in a home that, man, you had some resource, right? Like your parents were, you know, had, you know, a job and took care of, and you, you didn't kind of wrestle or struggle for much growing up. How many would that be? Okay, how many of you would say, man, we struggled a little bit growing up as a family, right? Look around the room, right? You know, how many of you would say, you know, you grew up here in the United States of America? That's majority. Uh, put your hands down. How many of you didn't grow up in the United States of America? Oh, there's a few of us. Can we say to the Americans, thank you for welcoming us. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and here's the point that I'm simply trying to make, right? We could go on and on and on. But God has assembled a family from a diverse background, right? Like we could go on and on and on about the different backgrounds and the different experiences and perspectives and opinions from where we came from. But at some point, Jesus captured our heart and brings us into his family and says, you're not just my son and my daughter, you're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul was trying to help the church in Ephesus understand, that you are being built together as a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And I don't think there's any other greater family on the planet of the earth. How many of you agree with me? Church really is the dearest place on earth. And so my question this morning, I wanted to kind of do a couple of like question and answer type things, you know? And the first question that I started to ask myself, and this is just kind of how my brain works, is, well, if that's what God is doing, if Jesus is building his bride, the family of God, the church, the body of Christ here on this planet, how is it, that, or why is it, or why does that matter? And so in a world where, and in a culture where perhaps the church is becoming more and more irrelevant, it's important for us to remind ourselves why we're here. Why is God building the church? And we recognize Jesus is building his church. The Bible says that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes it might feel like the gates of hell feel like they're prevailing. But this is where we stand on God's word, not on culture. This is where we stand on God's word, not how we feel. And this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you're in chapter 2, he's laid out. This is what Jesus is doing. This is how he's doing it. He's building his church. And in chapter 3, he flips over. And now Paul starts to say, and this is why he's building his church. It says in Ephesians 3.10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in, spiritual pl or in heavenly places. 
Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me over the last few months drone on. I'm like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? And I've droned on about this idea that there are two competing stories The story of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of self as it gets described in the Bible and the story of the kingdom of God. And what Paul just told the church in Ephesus and what Paul is telling us is that the reason why the church matters is because the the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. It communicates the story and the kingdom of God, not just to the world around us, but to the heavenly principalities and powers. Because God has an unfolding story, a story of his kingdom that's advancing, a story of a kingdom that when Jesus returns, according to Revelation 21, 22, everything will be as it was meant to be. And everything that sin and the devil and the world have tried to corrupt and subvert, God will deal with it once and for all, and we will be as things are meant to be. And so why does the church matter? Well, the church matters because according to God's eternal purpose, Ephesians 3, verse 11, God is using the church to declare and display the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God, the story of God. Could I say it this way? The church is the primary instrument of God to extend his kingdom here on earth. There are lots of wonderful ministries and lots of wonderful uh, opportunities uh, and things that exist, in, and especially in countries like America, ministries that God is using, God has placed. There's been a vision in the heart of something, but the, the vision or the instrument that God is using primarily to advance the kingdom of God, to share the story of God with the planet with which we live, as well as the spiritual forces that are behind all of these stories, is the church. And it kind of shifts what church actually is in our mind, doesn't it? I mean, I thought church was, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, look inside at all the happy people, woo, right? Isn't that what church is? Like, isn't church something that we do on Sunday morning? Isn't church like, you know, kind of just the gathering of the saints? We get to worship together and do all that kind of stuff, right? Isn't church a building? No, no, no. Church isn't, and while, while those are expressions of church, that's not what church is. It's also not why the church really matters because when I go, when you look at China, and you may not be, even be aware of this, but like Iran right now, there's a major revival happening in Iran and they don't get to meet in buildings and have awesome worship like we do. But they're the body of Christ. And what are they doing? They're declaring the manifold wisdom of God in Iran and in China and in different parts of the world. Why? This is why church matters, because church is the primary instrument that God uses to advance his kingdom and the story that has been unfolding since Genesis chapter 1. And so the church really matters. It kind of changes what church is all about, doesn't it? In, In fact, Jesus is jealous or zealous for his church. Look, look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 17. It says, don't you realize that all of you together, in other words, people, not buildings, are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives among you? Well, we're beginning to realize that. But then listen to these words that God through Paul penned. He said this, God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
In other words, God is saying, I am zealous. I'm jealous. I'm passionate about my bride. And there is a bride that will be presented without spot or blemish before God. And there's this union that we talk about and we recognize that we read about in Revelation. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that Jesus is building his church. And it matters because the church being built and the church being the church, the family of God, the bride of Christ, is advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. In fact, it actually says in Psalm, 20, or Psalm 92 that those who are planted in the house of God flourish. You want to know how to be abundant? You want to know how to flourish and thrive in life? Be planted in a church. Be planted in the family of God. And I think most of us in this room have probably experienced that. We've gone through some difficult times, challenging times. Maybe there's some things individually or as a family you've experienced. And man, it's in those moments that you feel the love and the kindness and the care and concern of the body of Christ around you, don't you? We flourish when we're planted in the house of the Lord. So Jesus is building his house, and it matters because that's how the kingdom advances here on earth. But how is the church built? How has God constructed the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. You were asking, right? Okay, well, we're going there anyway. But this is, this is, we recognize this from the verses that we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this. It says that Christ Jesus himself is be, as be, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together. And so the first thing that we've got to recognize is how is God building his church? God builds his church by having Jesus Christ be the cornerstone. He's the anchor stone. He's the stone off of which everything else gets built. And we recognize that, that you know, you know we, in, in, in this day and age, we don't tend to kind of put a cornerstone when we go to build a house, right? Uh, I had the privilege of growing up in Ireland, and then we spent a lot of time on the East Coast, and there's a lot like of old houses out there. And, and the foundation was like you had to set the cornerstone because the foundation would then get built off of the cornerstone. And that cornerstone had to be perfect. That cornerstone had to be shaped. That cornerstone had to be laid perfectly so that the foundation then could be laid, so that the structure could be built on top of it. And what Jesus is saying, or what God is saying is, you want to know how I build my church? I don't build it off of good ideas. I don't build it off of trends. I don't build it off of kind of man's idea or a group of people's ideas. I build it off of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. It's why this pursuit that we're talking about today is that we want to be a Christ-centered community. He is our cornerstone. We sang it this morning. We sang last week, you know, Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus is the cornerstone. But the verse that we just read, uh, the verse ahead of, uh, or verse 21 that follows that says this, but he's built, or the church is then built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And literally what Paul was trying to help these Ephesian Christians understand and what he wants us to understand is that Jesus is our cornerstone, but the word of God is the foundation upon which the church is built. You see, it was the apostles and the prophets who were used by God, inspired divinely by God, to pan what we now know as the word of God. And so what Paul was trying to help them understand is that you want to know how I'm building the church? Jesus is the cornerstone, and the word of God is our foundation. It's why in our statement of faith we make such a big deal about the word of God. We believe that the word of God is the inspired, authoritative word of God. I want to build my life off of the word of God. I want you to build your life off of the word of God. I want our church community to be built off of the word of God. Why? Because it is the foundation upon which God is building his church. 
And so we want to be the kind of people that respect and honor the authority of the word of God and build off of that because why? Jesus is the cornerstone, but he's laid a foundation and that foundation is found in his word. When we read about the early church, we read and see a model, an example for us of what the church ought to look like. Now we're imperfect. We don't always get it right, but we're trying our hardest to make sure that we're following the blueprint that the Bible lays out for us. How many of you have ever built a house? I've never, I've never actually built a house or been involved in building a house. I just, I like it when it's done and I can just move into it. Like, you know, but some of you love that stuff. But when you're, if you're building a house, you don't just show up and, you know, okay, we got the land, let's pour some concrete and hopefully I've got enough wood and we'll try to put that stuff together, right? Um, that's not how we build. We build based off of a blueprint and the blueprint, the foundation is God's word. But we also recognize that, that in building his house, God has the cornerstone as James Jesus. He lays the foundation through the word of God. But then God calls qualified men and women to be elders or overseers of that house. And so we recognize that there are, there's a church universal. We're all part of the universal church. Or, uh, and then there are, there's a local church that gets built and established. And we're a local church. And God says, I'm going to set in place qualified men and women who will be able to build, care for, model, pray, preach, encourage, strengthen, watch out for. They're supposed to care for, oversee, and protect this local body. And we have that. We have a group of qualified men and women who are known as the elders of our church. Uh, now, how many of you have heard the term eldership before, right? So have you ever wondered, what is the eldership? And what does the eldership do? Well, I'm here to tell you that the eldership is not like a Jedi council. In fact, let me, let me show you. Here, this is our elders team. And uh, oh, guys. We look good, don't we? Um, but eldership is not some sort of Jedi council, right? Eldership is a group of qualified men and women. How many of you know those men and women are not perfect? There's not one of us perfect, right? We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to always get it right. The Bible says this, they ought to be blameless, which means to say that, in fact, somebody once told me it this way, blameless literally means to sin with integrity. <laughs> that sounds really funny, doesn't it? But what, what that literally means is that we're not willfully trying to make mistakes or sin or do these things. With accountability and prayer and seeking counsel inside and outside, looking to God's word, prayer, fasting, devoting ourselves to try to understand the foundation upon which we're built, the eldership is designed to care for and oversee the body of Christ. Now, they're not going to do it perfectly. Elders are going to make mistakes. The eldership is going to make mistakes. We're not always going to get it right. But I hope that there's grace, that you are praying for the eldership of this church because uh, we recognize that the Bible teaches us that those who pastor and elder, or labor, those who are elders, those who labor amongst the flock, it says, will give account, which means that someday I'll stand before God as to how I served you, how I loved you. Did I lead you to become more and more like Jesus or was I leading you to some sort of agenda I had as an individual? That's a fearful and a sacred thing, isn't it? Anybody want to be an elder? Anybody? 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 Yeah. So, so we recognize that God gives elders to care for and to oversee. Not always perfect. We're going to try our best. 
And then the Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 4 that God sets ministries. It says it this way, apostles and prophets and pastors and leaders and teachers, right? He sets those ministries in place to equip every one of us for the work of ministry. Well, what's the work of ministry? It's advancing the kingdom of God. It's advancing the story of God. It's us becoming more and more like Jesus. It's us molding and shaping and forming and loving and helping one another, And so this is how Jesus builds his church. And I hope you recognize that those are the pieces, but we're the ones then that advance forward together. We're the ones that collaborate and belong to one another and participate with one another to see the kingdom of God advance in us and through us. And so Jesus is all about building his church. And so my question, next question is then, well, how does Jesus then, or how does God relate to his family? How does God relate to the church? And uh, how many of you, in fact, if you're over the age of 16, your world is kind of dictated and driven by contracts? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have a cell phone bill? All right, just a few of you. Or it's okay. Let's raise our hands. Let's all participate together. Come on. Get your hands in the air like you just don't care. Come on. Whoop, whoop. Right? So you all have contracts. You have a cell phone contract. How many of you have a car payment, right? Okay. How many of you have a mortgage? How many of you have insurance, Right? See, your world is driven and dictated by contracts. And how does a contract work? A contract works this way, doesn't it? Um, if, this, if AT&T will provide me with a phone, the ability to phone call, the ability to text, and the ability to surf the web while I'm bored waiting at a red stoplight, right? Then I will make a payment every, week, every month. And I'm kind of good with that, right? But if they stop providing that service, what happens? I'm not paying them. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain, right? Now, In all my examples of contracts, did you notice that I didn't use marriage as an example? Can you imagine if marriage was a contract? Now, my wife and I have been married almost 27 years. And uh, I mean, in October, I get ahead of myself, but almost, we're we're getting there. We're, We're moving towards 27 years, okay? But can you imagine 27 years ago, right, we're planning our wedding and we're doing the whole kind of, you know, the, the dress and the cake and the photographer and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then I say, hey, Jenny, uh, we really need to have a, co- a conversation about this contract. And so I'll tell you what. I will mow the lawn if you make dinner. And she goes, well, I'm only going to make dinner if, uh, if you do the vacuuming. And I'm going, well, I'm going to go do the vacuuming if you do the laundry. Well, I'm only going to do the laundry if you do the ironing, right? Like, can you imagine if that's how marriage was? That marriage was some sort of a contract. Well, how many of you know marriage is not a contract? Marriage, and this is a word that we use it, but we don't always understand what it is. Marriage is a covenant, right? And in a covenant, what happens is I'm going to give All of who I am, not 50%. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100% in on both sides. And what we actually say at many wedding ceremonies is simply this, that whether I'm rich or I'm poor, in sickness and in health, you get all of me. I'm pushing all my chips in on you. And this is how God relates to us. God's pushed all the chips in, not in a contract, but in a covenant. And he said, through thick or thin, whether you're with me or not with me, whether you're faithful or whether you stub your toe, stumble and fall, I'm with you. What a promise. 
We talked about this last week. This is the justifying work of Jesus in each one of our lives. But now Paul is blowing this thing up to say it's not just the justifying work of Jesus in each one of our lives. It's actually the covenant relationship that God has with his family. So much so that he describes her, his family as his bride. In fact, Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 5, he says, I've ransomed you. In Romans chapter 8, he says this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Meaning that if you are in Jesus, who's going to condemn you? You're already forgiven, right? God's forgiven you. God's loved you. God said, you're mine. You belong to me. And so the enemy can't come accusing you. The enemy can't come condemning you, right? It says that in our weakness, what his strength is made perfect. And the point that I'm simply trying to help us understand is simply this. God is all in on you, so much so that he hasn't just fulfilled his side of the covenant. He's actually fulfilled our side of the covenant because we couldn't do it in our own strength. And Jesus is the one that goes to the cross so that we can stand in relationship. In fact, it says this in Jude uh, verse 24. There's only one chapter. And it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his, uh, of his glory with great joy. In other words, what Jude is saying here is that it's God who keeps you. It's God that protects you. In other words, God is relating to you not through contract, but through covenant. And this is how God wants us to relate to one another. God wants us not to have a contractual relationship with one another. God wants us to have a covenant relationship with one another, which means rich or poor, in sickness and in health, through thick and thin. She looked at me funny. He said something funky. I'm still in love. I'm still in relationship. We're still brothers and sisters in Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells it this way. The Bible actually in the New Testament says that there are, it says it this way. Paul over and over says this, one another. I want you to be this for one another. Regardless if the other person reciprocates back to you, you commit to being this way to one another. Now, I probably don't have time to go through it all, but there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. I want to read just a few of them. I promise I won't read all of them. I'll skip um, for the sake of time. But 17 times in the New Testament, it says love one another, five, serve one another, accept one another, strengthen one another, help one another, encourage one another, care for one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, commit to one another, build trust with one another, devote, one, devote yourselves to one another, be patient, be patient, be patient <laughs> with one another. It says be interested in one another. All the single dudes are like, on it. Uh, that's not what it means. Uh, be accountable to one another. Confess to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be conceited. Do not pass judgment. Do not slander. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Spur one another on to love and good works. Meet with one another. Agree with one another. On and on and on I could go. But do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying Jesus relates to you through covenant and he wants us to relate to one another, not in a contract, but to relate to one another through covenant, which means covenant says, I'm going to become this for you. I hope that you would become that for me, but if you don't, I'm still going to become this for you. And this is how Jesus wants the church, the bride of Christ, the family of God to relate to one another. Now, my wife and I have been married, like I said, uh, almost 27 years. 
and we're both firstborns. Do we have any other firstborns in the house? Or do we have any other married couples that both are firstborns? We got a few. We got a few right here. Oh, good, good. The Douglases. There we go. And so um, they're much more mature than we are. But what happens because we're both firstborns is Jenny and I love to fight. Because we both have strong opinions about things, right? And so we get into it with one another, right? But could I tell you this after almost 27 years of marriage? You're going to fight with someone. I want to fight with Jenny the rest of my life. And you know why? Because we're in a covenant relationship. And so what that does is that we learn to love each other well through those disagreements, through those fights. Why? Because we're committed to one another. It's a sacred space. It's a safe place that Jenny and I can have disagreements and have arguments. And we live in a world that's Hollywoodized that says, man, love is kind and you're always just going to be lovey-dovey and you're always, there's never going to be any arguments and perfectly devoted, you know, watch a Hallmark movie, it's all okay, right? Like, like that's what the world presents. But the hard, cold truth, the reality of the life that we have is that because we're broken, we're going to do this. But what covenant marriage allows me to do is a sacred place, a safe place where it's okay for my wife and I because she knows I'm not going anywhere. And she's not going anywhere. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with one another. Covenant pushes all the chips in and says, I'm all in, knowing that there's going to be times that we fail and times that I fail. But I'm all in on the relationship. Why? Because this is how Jesus relates to me. This is how Jesus relates to us. And Jesus said, you're now my kids. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is now how we relate to one another. Which means there are times when I have to say, and trust me, I do this all the time. I do it with our staff all the time. Man, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it to come across that way. I intended this. It came across that way. Would you forgive me? Right? Get good at asking forgiveness of one another, right? That's the key to a healthy marriage, by the way. That's free right there, right? Get good at asking forgiveness. Get good at owning your part. Get good at saying, I'm going to be all of these one another's for the other person, regardless if the other person sees it that way or not. And at the end of the day, I think what God's really building isn't a restaurant, because a restaurant is contractual, isn't it? Like, if, if I go to a restaurant, I expect it to be seated, and I want to order something on the menu, and, you know, if there's a hair in it or something, not to be gross or anything, right? But any of that kind of stuff going on, I'm, like, shipping that stuff back. You know, I'll give a tip based on the service, right? And then I don't do the dishes or anything. I just leave. And by the way, I love that. Anybody else? But that's not what God's building because that's a contractual thing. What God's building is a family, and you've been there, you know, you've either seen it on TV or you have this every Thanksgiving, you know, you have your dining room table and then you have one of those like eight foot tables from Costco and then you have one of those card tables, you know, and you're just hoping that you don't sit at the card table because you're frightened you might knock it over, right? But, but what, what I'm communicating is that what God is building is a table, a family, and at the table or at the family table, what you recognize is that there's all kinds of different people from all kinds of different uh, places in life and at different stages in their journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. 
And just like your natural table, you're going to have a high chair with a baby that you're going to have to feed, right? Or if they can feed themselves, half of it ends up over on the floor anyway, right? And so the point that I'm simply trying to make is that, that, that around the, fa- the table of God or the family that God is building, there are those that are new in their faith. Those are, there are those that are just for the first time understanding and experiencing what it means to live, with, live like Jesus. But we recognize that as they grow and mature, that they have the ability, just like your kids had the ability as they grew and mature, to actually help you set the table. No, 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 put the silverware on this, you know, put the fork here and put the knife there, Right? And then you get to this stage where we did this Christmas where my son, he's 22 years old, and he wanted to make prime rib, and it was actually really good. (laughs) My point is simply this. We all contribute when you're a part of a family, don't you? It's not just about coming in and receiving. That's part of it because we all eat and we all participate, right? But we all recognize that we set the table together. All of us bring it. We bring different dishes to the table. We get to experience and delight and enjoy one another. And in the midst of doing that, we get to be fed. We get to mature. We get to grow. And then there's dishes that need to be done. There's tables that need to be put away. There's chairs that have to go back up into the attic for next year, right? Like, that's just what it means to be a part of the family. First Peter 4.10 says it this way. Every single one of us who's a part of the body of Christ has been given a gift. And here's what he says. You're to use that gift to serve one another. Well, I'm going to wait and see what they get me. No, no, no. That's not, that's contract. Covenant, I'm going to use what God's given me to bless the body, to bless the family. And as the family's blessed, what happens is that the community that we're a part of and the world that we're a part of gets to be blessed. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to stand together. And I want us just to close in prayer. Because uh, how many of you would say, that's what I want to be a part of? Oh, just a few of you. There you go. We want to be, we want to be that kind of a church. We want to be Jesus-centered. But we also want to belong to and participate in because we're part of a covenant community. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then in the lobby... There's all kinds of ministries and teams and places for all of us to be involved. And some of you are already involved. Some of you have some ideas. There's a gentleman this week who's like, man, I just want to do oil changes for widows and single moms and and just kind of be involved. And I'm like, that's the body of Christ at work. No payment back. Just, I want to do this. I want to be a blessing, right? That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We want to belong to and participate in and use our passions and our talents and our gifts, the things that God has given us to make a difference in the world in which we live. And so, Lord, as we close today, uh, Lord, I know in a practical sense, Lord, there's opportunities and there's people in this room that, Lord, they've, you've already given them some ideas. You've given them some thoughts, some things that, Lord, they're supposed to do. They're, we, we as a church are not functioning and accomplishing everything that you've called us to because, Lord, they haven't stepped into their space yet. But there's a beautiful idea. There's a vision. There's something going on in their hearts. Lord, there's all kinds of ministries and next generations and people inside and outside of our church that, Lord Jesus, ought to feel the love and the care of the family of God. And so, Lord, I pray, would you make us into that kind of covenant community? Not a community that's in it for what we get out of it, but in it regardless of what we get out of it. We're all in because you're all in. We're responding in covenant because that's how you led us. That's how you initiated with us. And so, Jesus, what a privilege to be not, in, not just in covenant with you, but in covenant with one another today. 
So Lord, we say thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your bride, your family, your body, the church of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we say thank you for that privilege in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said... Amen, amen, amen. So, hey, listen, God bless you as you go. Please go meet some people, learn some more things that we're doing around the church that maybe you're gonna be a part of. If you need prayer, we'll have some prayer partners here. God bless you. We'll catch you here next week.